Uh, well, good to see you all. Let me, um, I think we'll have another one or two people joining us, um, but let me go ahead and pray and we will uh, go ahead and get started in, in the class. Uh, Father, as always, I just ask that you would bless this time. Um, I am always well aware of my inadequacies and um, lack of understanding. And, and so I do ask that um, that your word would be open before these friends and that this would be a time well spent for each of us. Um, lead us to see more fully um, what's going on in these texts, we pray, and we do thank you for them. Uh, in Christ's name, amen. Um, so just to recall, last week then we we kind of wrapped up this this high point in the gospel narrative, which consists, I would say, of Peter's profession of faith in Jesus Christ uh, as the Christ, the Son of God. And then coupled with that, Christ's declaration that he is headed toward Jerusalem where he will be killed and he will be raised from the dead. Um, and then the call to follow, in effect, to come and die with him. And then um, that's followed immediately by this transfiguration experience and the juxtaposition of Jesus's experience on the mountain where he encounters the glory of his father and and Jesus's own original real glory as the son of God is revealed. Um, and then he comes down from that to the realities of this world in the valley and encounters this man with the son who is troubled and sick. And, um, and, and we hear Jesus moan, um, how long must I stay? How long do I have to put up with your people? Um, you are a faithless messed up lot. Um, and, and it's a, it's, it's a real genuine agony. I, I encourage you at the end of that class to, to enter into that juxtaposition yourself that, um, don't just take it as about Jesus. Obviously we will take it as about Jesus, but, but, but feel that agony yourself. And I, and I hope there are points in your life where you, where you know the glory, the beauty, the goodness, the love, the truth, and then feel the brokenness in juxtaposition to that. Um, I, I think it's important for us to, to recognize it. And I, and I'm struck sometimes. Um, every now and then for reasons that are probably almost never good, I'm, I'm awake, you know, at 1230 in the morning and I, I happen to catch the, what's, what's identified at least as the final musical performance on a late night talk show. Um, and, and it's often disheartening, I will admit, um, stumbled into one the other night and the, the amount of anger just oozing off the stage was very striking. And that's often been the case, whether it's from my generation, um, and rock bands that come to my mind from 40 years ago or, or more contemporary that there is, there is a tremendous amount of anger in the world right now. And, and it's worth reflecting and wondering where does it come from? It doesn't just come from brokenness. It comes from some sense that things are not the way they ought to be and that there is something better and something good and something true and something just and something right for which we all long. And, and that's why we feel the brokenness as intensely as we do. So, so to, so to let Jesus' own experience in some sense inform our experience and deepen it is important. But then, then let it, let it be Jesus' experience and, and in our own weak ways, just say, my word, what an agony it must have been for him. 
what an agony it must have been to know what he knew, to know the glory in its fullness, and then encounter what we are in our brokenness. Um, and it's and it's a highly a highly dramatic moment um, here. I would say as he comes down and encounters this situation, um, there, there's tremendous drama here. And after his moaning and his groaning about it, he, he then, he then says this, this wonderful line. I would have loved to have heard him say it. Bring the boy to me. And he heals this young boy and, and delivers him from this brokenness and this evil. And, and then, and in effect, Jesus answers his own question. How long must I stay? How long must I put up with you? And his answer is, I will stay as long as I need to, to do what I came to do. And he once again reiterates, we are going to Jerusalem. Um, and, and he sets his face toward Jerusalem. Um, so it's a very high point in the narrative and Matthew, Mark and Luke, certainly. Um, and particularly in, and I would, in Matthew and Mark, I think. Um, but but it does then bring us to um, a question about the, the narratives alongside each other. Um, I sent you a handout. I hope you have it. It's the overview of the gospel narratives. Does everybody get that? And can you get that in front of you? Um, I'm sure I could screen share, but if you if you do have it, that's great. Um, everybody got that? Good. Um, have a, have a look at it then. And, and we're sort of reading from top to bottom. Um, and, and what I've done is suggest that the overall picture, the overview, is that we've got this introductory material. In each case, you've got a verse or a few verses that is what I would call just straight out introductory. In a couple of cases, we've got birth narratives. And then in all four cases, we've got John the Baptist. Um, John the Baptist is imprisoned, and then Jesus enters into his public ministry. Um, and you can get a pretty good sense for the overview of the entire Gospels here. I'd, I'd encourage you to try to get that sense. The first um, four chapters of Matthew, Luke, and John are, are included here. Mark very quickly jumps into the public ministry. And then halfway down the page, you have this episode that we've just talked about last week. Um, which I would say is a really significant moment. It appears in some form in all four gospels where Peter's, where we have Peter's profession and the turn to Jerusalem and the call to follow. Um, in three gospels, then the transfiguration is included as a sort of an affirmation, um, of this reality that Jesus is the Christ. And then of course, down at the bottom of the page, you have the final week, which is the ultimate climax of the narrative. The approach to Jerusalem, entry into Jerusalem, that final week, um, Jesus' death and resurrection and his appearances as resurrected. So that's sort of the, you know, just the flyover. Um, but then what I want to try to point out is what's in the bold face numbers. Um, a third of the way down the page, you'll see that to get from the beginning of Jesus' public ministry to Peter's profession, Matthew spends 12 chapters. Now, remember, chapter divisions are an artificial division um, that came along a few centuries ago, and verse numbers followed that. Um, but we'll, we'll just refer to chapters because it's helpful. Matthew spends 12 chapters there to get to Peter's profession, and then going from there into the final week, just really three chapters from the middle of chapter 17 to the middle of chapter 20. 
Mark has a similar pattern in terms of the amount of material. Mark's gospel is much shorter than Matthew's. So you could just kind of see it as um, chapters one to eight. They're getting to the Peter's profession is pretty much half of Mark's gospel. And then very quickly from there, he takes us to the approach uh, into Jerusalem. Uh, just two chapters. Um, but then contrast that with Luke's gospel. Luke uses just four, five chapters to get us to Peter's profession. And then from that point, all the way down to the entry into Jerusalem, Luke has a lot of material, 10 chapters. So the contrast with Matthew is particularly striking Matthew takes 12 chapters to get us to the profession and three to get us from there into the final week. Luke is just the opposite, moves us pretty quickly to Peter's profession and then takes quite a bit of time to get us from there into the final week. If you sort of plot the narrative then, sort of see the the trajectory of the narrative, in Matthew, what you've got is Matthew building and building and building there's a kind of a mystery there are questions there's controversy there's tension and most of all there's an argument that is building and building and building and it and it comes to a a real climax in peter's profession thou art the christ the son of the living god it's interesting that in matthew's version of that you have that full statement, thou art the Christ, the son of the living God. In Mark and Luke, you have a much more truncated statement, thou art the Christ of God. Um, so, so that statement in Matthew is clearly a kind of a pinnacle in the narrative, a climax. And, and having gotten to that kind of clarity in the argument, Matthew moves us quickly to what is obviously the next main climax, and that is the final week of Jesus's life and his death and resurrection. Um, Luke then does build to Peter's profession. It still appears as something of a, of a climax, but it's not nearly the buildup that you get in Matthew. And, and what then happens in Luke's telling is that when you get to that profession of faith, where Jesus is declared to be the Christ of God, Luke uses that not so much as a as a huge climax that leads us to the very end. He uses it more as almost a starting point or a jumping off point to then really unpack, unfold, build, and deepen the narrative that he wants to tell. It's, it's one more point at which having four Gospels is, I think, just really enriching. If all we had were Matthew and Mark, I think we'd have a picture of moving really quite quickly from the transfiguration into the final week of Jesus's life. Um, maybe what weeks or something? I, I'm not sure. Just, but, but the picture is just a very quick movement. Whereas what Luke does is make it clear that there's a lot more to the story in that period than Matthew and Mark give us. It's not contradictory or anything, but it is pretty striking that there is that much more to be said. Now we will find out later that some of what Luke includes in chapters 9 to 19 of his gospel, Matthew will have included in the first 16 chapters of his gospel. So as we saw in first semester, Matthew does this kind of thing. Matthew does rearrange the material, um, because he is, he is building the argument and he's, and he's arranging the material around the logic of the argument rather than around the logic of the chronos or the chronologic of the, of the story.
Luke, I think, is giving us much more of the chronological picture. And so what he enriches us with here is a lot more to be said in that period between the transfiguration and the and the final week of Jesus in, in Jerusalem. We'll, we'll see there's a lot of material in there that is unique to Luke and particularly um, teaching of Jesus um, that uh, that it's so wonderful to have and so enriching. And so what we've got, again, is this picture in Luke of him clarifying things where we might be a little bit confused because of Matthew and Mark and the way they line up with each other or sometimes don't line up with each other very clearly. Luke will clarify that kind of a thing. Um and then he will um, complement it and, and expand on it and give us uh, this additional material. But it is interesting just to see the sort of narrative uh, trajectories that we've got in, in the different Gospels. And then when you add John, you have a strikingly different kind of a trajectory. You don't get to the public ministry of Jesus, I would argue, until chapter 5, verse 1 after the meeting with a woman at the well in Samaria, um, John gives us really just a chapter, chapter five, before getting the feeding of the 5,000 and Jesus's discourse about bread. Um, <clears throat> Peter's profession then is at the end of that discourse, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life. And then John gives us um, a few highlights that we will see are primarily in Jerusalem for just a few chapters and really by chapter 11 in John, about the midway mark of the gospel, we are pretty much at the entry of Jerusalem. We're, we're, we're right there in the approach and the, and the, um, episodes that, that John includes, uh, for, for instance, in chapter 11 will even be shown to be really part of the approach, uh, into Jerusalem. And then you can see we have a lot, um, in, in that final week, uh, where John gives eight chapters just to the final uh, to the final night of Jesus's life um, before the crucifixion in chapter 19 and then resurrection appearances as well. So a full half of John's gospel is really uh, in that final week of the death and the resurrection of, of Jesus. Um, so that, that much sort of as an overview and a sense of the trajectories of the narrative. Um, let me just pause there and say, are there are questions or thoughts you have about that things that, strike you or aren't clear never hesitate to wave at me out to hopefully see your hand or, um, or just speak up if you're um, not visible um, so so what I want to do then today with the rest of this class is is to look at Matthew and Mark in this period from Peter's profession and the transfiguration to where um, they show Jesus entering Jerusalem in what we know as the triumphal entry. It's four chapters in Matthew and um, two chapters in Mark. Um, in a sense, it's, it's, it's even less than that. Uh, we're talking about Mark chapters 9 and 10 and Matthew chapters 17 to 20. Um, it's pretty important that you have a Bible in front of you at this point. So either um, just a, an actual book, one of those old fashioned things um, or on the, on the screen, however you want to do it. But I'd really encourage you to get um, Mark, just to glance at Mark, and then um, we'll go to Matthew's gospel. Let me go ahead and admit that <clears throat> I find these sections of Matthew and Mark to be some of the most puzzling um, parts of reading the Gospels. 
and, and by that I just mean, I, I'm not sure just what, and to just focus on Matthew, I'm not sure just exactly what Matthew's up to here. We, we've seen a pretty coherent development of an argument to this point. And, and it all makes sense and flows really well. And then he moves pretty readily to chapter 21 and the entry into Jerusalem. And, and then that follows quite naturally in terms of Matthew's telling. Um, and then you just have these few chapters between the transfiguration and Jerusalem. Um, what's Matthew doing here? Um, and I'll, uh, uh, yeah, I think what I'll do is just stay in Matthew. You can look at, at Mark chapters nine and 10 sort of on your own time, maybe, and I'll, I'll reference them as we go here. But in Matthew 17, you remember we've got the transfiguration in the first half of that chapter. They come down from the mountain and have the encounter with this man and his son. And then Matthew and Mark both divide this into a period in Galilee followed by a period in Judea. So in verse 22 of chapter 17, we have them gathering together in Galilee and another iteration of Jesus's statement that he is going to be delivered up and they will kill him and he will be raised again on the third day. Next, you have this curious little episode. Um, the two drachma tax. They come to Capernaum. Um, the, the tax collectors come to Peter and say, does your teacher pay this tax? Peter said, yes. And then when he came into the, into the house, Jesus says to him, what do you think, Simon? From whom do the kings of the earth collect customs or poll tax? From their sons or from strangers? Upon his saying from strangers, Jesus said to him, consequently, the sons are exempt. But lest we give them offense, go to the sea, throw in a hook, take the first fish that comes up. And when you open his mouth, you'll find a stator that that the coin needed to pay this tax. Take it and give it to them for you and for me. Matthew's the only one that gives us that one. And again, I, I ask you, what what strikes you in these episodes and these teachings of Jesus in these few chapters? So we're going to be listening. What what themes are being developed? What is Matthew doing here? Um, then there's a discussion about who is the greatest. Now, one of the things that Mark includes in chapter nine, verse thirty-one, and following, is that the reason this discussion opens up the way it does. It's because the disciples are talking among themselves about which one of them is the greatest. Jesus picks up on that and calls a child to himself. Now back in Matthew 18, 2, has the child stand in the midst and says, truly, unless you turn and become like a child, you will not enter the kingdom of heaven. Whoever humbles himself as this child, he is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. And whoever receives one such child in my name receives me. Whoever causes one of these little ones who believes in me to stumble, it would be better for that person that a millstone be hung around his neck and that he be drowned in the sea. Be like a child. Receive children. 
care for the children, don't dare cause them to stumble. And then don't let yourself stumble. And he gives this very extreme kind of imagery of your foot or your hand or your eye. Any any part of you causes you to stumble, then cut it out. Be rid of it. Better to enter life with one eye than having two eyes be cast into the Gehenna, the hell of fire. Verse 10, see that you do not despise one of these little ones. I say to you that they're angels in heaven. Behold the face of my father who is in heaven. And then Matthew gives us this little parable of the lost sheep. Verse 12, if a man has a hundred sheep and one goes astray, does he not leave the 99 and go search for that one? And if he finds it, I say, he rejoices over it more than the 99, which have not been lost or gone astray. It is not the will of your father that one of these little ones should perish. Luke will give us that parable as well uh, later in his narrative. Then Matthew talks about how to deal with a brother who sins against you and then tells this group of disciples, um, whatever you bind on earth shall have been bound in heaven. Whatever you loose on earth shall have been loosed in heaven. Binding and loosing may have to do with judgment and forgiveness. Um, if you agree and ask, um, it shall be done for you by my Father who is in heaven, where two or three have gathered in my name, there I am in their midst. Peter then says, in dealing with our brothers in sin, uh, how often should we forgive our brothers if they for, if they sin against us? Up to like seven times? That seems a little bit of a stretch, he thinks. Jesus says, I do not say to you up to seven, but to 70 times seven. And then Matthew gives us what is unique to Matthew here. The kingdom of heaven may be compared to a certain king. And he tells the story of a king who forgives someone for his debts. And then that debtor turns around and refuses to forgive the debt of someone else and is then judged for that. Verse 33, should you not also have mercy on your fellow servant, even as I've had mercy on you? Moved with anger, the Lord hands him over to the torturers until he should repay all that was owed him. So shall my heavenly father do to you if each of you does not forgive your brother from your heart. Now we move into the Galilee portion, which would correspond to Mark chapter 10. He's now in, or I'm sorry, departing from Galilee to Judea. Um, healing, more testing. And the question of divorce and the call to faithfulness. And then children are brought to him that he might lay his hands on them in verse 13 and pray for them. The disciples rebuke these people, but Jesus says, no, 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 no. Let the children come. Do not hinder them for the kingdom of heaven belongs to such as these and here he's not saying the kingdom of heaven belongs to people who are like children he is saying these children whose parents are bringing them for my blessing are members of the kingdom of heaven and he lays his hands on them 
Now, at this point, with the coming of the children, just so you know, this is where Luke rejoins the narrative in chapter 18, I believe it is, of Luke. And so from this point on, Luke, Mark, and Matthew will be similar, but they will also, in Luke and Matthew's case, have some unique elements as well. What follows here, the children is common to all three, and then this next question, um, Verse 16, what shall I, what good thing shall I do that I may obtain eternal life? And Jesus says, why are you asking me what is good? There's only one who is good. But if you wish to enter life, keep the commandments. The man says, which one? Jesus gives him the commandments. Do not murder, do not commit adultery, do not steal, do not bear false witness, honor your father and mother, love your neighbor as yourself. The young man says, all these things I've done, what am I still lacking? Jesus says, if you wish to be whole, go and sell your possessions and give to the poor, and you shall have treasure in heaven. And come, follow me. When the young man hears this, he goes away sorrowful, for he was one who owned a lot of stuff. It's hard for a rich man to enter the kingdom, Jesus says, but with God, all things are possible. And those who give up everything in this world, even family and home and house, will receive many times as much and inherit eternal life. Many who are first will be last, verse 30, and the last first. Another parable unique to Matthew then follows. The kingdom of heaven is like a landowner who goes out early in the morning and he hires laborers for the vineyard. And then he continues to go out every couple of hours and hire more people. At the end of the day, he pays the same wage to those he hired first as those he hired last. I've heard this argued over, but I think the way to take this is just straightforwardly. He said he would pay Everybody who started at the beginning of the day, $100 for their day's labor, and he gave the same $100 to the people who just worked an hour or two at the end of the day. So when those hired first came to get paid, they thought they'd receive more. And when they didn't, they grumbled. In verse 12, they said, these people who just worked one hour, you've paid the same as you paid us. The owner says, Friend, I'm doing you no wrong. Did you not agree with me for the payment? Take what is yours and go your way. If I wish to be gracious (laughs) to this last man and pay him the same as you, is it not lawful for me to do what I wish with what is my own? Or is your eye envious because I am generous? The last shall be first and the first last. Now in verse 17, they are heading toward Jerusalem. He tells them again what's going to happen. And the last two things that we have are the discussion with John and James about which is the greatest. Uh, In Matthew's gospel, it is their mother who comes to Jesus with his question uh, for them to be seated at his right and left hand. And Jesus says it's not his to decide. But I am looking for people who are not interested in ruling over others, um, but who seek to be a servant. And once again, whoever wishes to be first shall be your servant. 
just as the son of man, verse 28, chapter 20, just as the son of man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life a ransom for many. And then the very last thing is the healing of the two blind men. Um, Matthew will often have a second person healed in these episodes. Um, Mark's gospel identifies one of these blind men, at least, um, as Bartimaeus. And it's there at Jericho, which is sort of where you make the turn to head up toward Jerusalem. Lord, have mercy on us. Lord, have mercy on us, son of David. A kind of a declaration of who Jesus is as he turns ultimately toward toward Jerusalem. Um, so it's it's hard to sort of grasp it all in, in a moment, but um, just to sort of say again, we've got in 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 Matthew then that two drachma tax thing. We've got this imagery of the child of children that we are to be like them, that we are to receive them, that we are to guard them that we are to guard our own selves from sin and temptation. Then unique to Matthew, at this point at least, the, the parable of the shepherd with the sheep, the instruction to forgive 70 times 7, a parable of forgiveness that we are to follow. Then you move into the material that is some. Cases more shared, comments about divorce and marriage, more about children and receiving them. And then the young man who comes asking about eternal life and Jesus calls him to obedience and to giving up and following. This curious parable about grace. Questions about greatness again with James and John and the healing of a blind man in the name of Jesus, son of David, Lord, who has mercy. I don't know what, what gets your attention in that? What, what, what do you, what do you hear most from what Matthew's doing in those chapters? And, and again, I, I, I will say this in every class I teach. I'm not sitting here with the right answer in my head and hoping one of you comes up with it. Okay. I am, I am asking a genuine question about how shall we understand what's going on in this, uh, in this section? I, I, it, it, it's probably worth recalling. And, and some of you are in the first semester. Several of you are not. Um, Matthew's argument about the Messiah about, and therefore about Jesus as the Christ or Messiah has a lot to do with, with building the case, not only that Jesus is the Messiah, but that he has the authority of Messiah, anointed king. And so the kingdom, um, the kingdom of heaven here is, um, is a central theme to the entire book and Jesus as king. Um, and as having the authority of king uh, is probably well worth keeping in view here. This is part of why I, even you'd have something like this curious tax question. Um, it, it brings to mind the other passage where Jesus says, render to Caesar what is Caesar's and to God what is God's. But it's but it's Jesus as king saying, no, we'll we'll pay our taxes. We don't want to be offensive, even though in a sense, 
We shouldn't have to. <laughs> this kingdom is not is not the kingdom that we're we're most centrally members of. But but we don't want to cause trouble. Let let's do that. Um, it, it certainly seems to sort of be playing off the fact that Jesus Himself is King, and there's the question of the sons of the kingdom. Then, what what are your thoughts here? You know, I I think that. Oh, because I wasn't here last semester. So that overarching idea of what Matthew is thinking about. Maybe there's a little more juxtaposition here of what the kingdom of heaven is about. Jesus talks about becoming like a child. Here are the children who I have welcomed into my kingdom. And also how these things are ours, but also we can still like contribute to them right versus these ideas of the rich and ruler thinking here's what i have to do to get into heaven by being good and accomplishing the law and then of the disciples view of heaven as being who is the best among us who will get power when we get to heaven so it seems like there's a little bit of contrast between the understanding of his followers versus what he is trying to tell them even up until these last moments in his ministry yeah, interesting contrast even between what they are still thinking at this point and what Jesus is calling them to. That's interesting. I've thought of a contrast here between what Jesus calls us to as members of his kingdom versus the typical ways we tend to think um, in, in the world. Um, but it's not just out there, is it? Uh, here it's his own followers who are who are rebuking parents for bringing their children, who are ignoring the children, who are wanting to claim seats at his right and left hand, who are wanting to think of greatness in exactly the opposite terms from what Jesus thinks of when it comes to greatness. Yeah, interesting. Is there any one piece of that section we read that most captures your attention? Or that you're most likely to be thinking about this time tomorrow still? And Dax, just so you know, we've just been looking over chapters 17 to 20 of Matthew's gospel. Thank you. Mm-hmm. For me, Richard, the, uh, the laborers in the vineyard story has always been, been something that stuck out for me. I think most of us, when we first read this, we undervalue the, the, the wage uh, until it, it finally hit me one day that this would, this would be similar to, to let's say, uh, Jeff Bezos giving me a billion dollars this morning for whatever reason. And then later this afternoon, he gives you a billion dollars. Yet I sit there and complain that why are you getting it? You know, you, you, you got it, you know, later than I did. You did less than I did to get it. And, and I, I'm not valuing the actual gift itself. I'm putting a, a low value on that. And I think that's for me, this is God's grace that he gives to all of us, whether we get it when we're young or when we're old or whenever we get it. Mm-hmm. The value of that grace, um, you just, you just can't, you, you just, we don't understand how valuable that grace is. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so, 
when I read that story, you know, the first time you read it, you do think, well, that's kind of unfair that these people worked all day and they got the same pay that someone else did when they came in at, you know, 530 in the afternoon. Mm-hmm. But I, I think we're just looking at the value of that pay. Uh, we, we shouldn't we shouldn't look at it the same way we may look at, you know, actual the actual money or whatever else you can put the value at that it's. Uh, we just undervalue that pay quite a bit and don't take, we take it for granted almost. Mm-hmm. So we shouldn't complain if somebody receives God's grace when they're hanging on the cross. You know, when Jesus right. told the, 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 the other guy on the cross that today you'll live with me in paradise. Mm-hmm. I mean, he got it very last second. Yeah. And so yeah. I'm not going to complain about that. Right. Right. Yeah. It is inter- it's a it's a pretty striking little parable, isn't it? Um as I understand it, I'm not sure Denarius would be quite the equivalent of the billion dollar part, but it is certainly, you know, a, a legitimate wage for the day. Um that whoever agreed to work for that should have agreed to work for it and be fine. But it is interesting. I think most of us, I I and I certainly encountered it in many others, read this and go, Well, wait a minute, that's unfair, that's unfair. Mm-hmm. And our and our whole sense of that's unfair, unfair. Uh, it's it's an interesting response. When in fact it, it is meant to be this picture of, uh, well, you're, you're right. I, I chose to be very generous to some people, more generous to them than I, than I guess I was to you. What I, but it's a parable of generosity and grace and, and our tendency to read it otherwise is quite telling. Yeah. Your, your allusion to the, uh, thief on the cross there with Jesus is also quite well taken. I think that's a great sort of specific application to this, this, of, of this parable. Well, neither one of us deserve. Yes. To right. pay, you know, right, right. Certainly there. Yeah. What else, what else captures your attention from this, this section? Anybody else? I think it's kind of interesting how um, it went from them asking him about the debts and kind of pointing out what's wrong with the world that they're in right now, probably hoping that he would say not to pay them. And then it goes from that to the man asking how he can get, like what he can do to get get to heaven and he's less willing to do what it takes to get there so kind of them not being happy where they're at but not being willing to do what it takes to get to heaven are you thinking of the 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 young ruler who asks them the young man who comes and asks him about the question about eternal life Mm -hmm. just Mm -hmm. the how it goes from like we read from the the questions about the debt and then later it went to that section as well. Mm-hmm. Yeah. That that story of the man who asks, What do I do to get eternal life? Um does Jesus give him the right answer? <laughs> it's it's a uh, these are striking moments, folks, um, and and read them honestly, and read all four gospels. When when they when they ask Jesus that question in John's gospel in chapter six, 
his answer is believe on the one whom the father has sent. That, that, that's a very clear statement. So this issue of believing in Jesus is at the heart of the gospel. It's the same gospel here, but Jesus is, is, I would say, sort of like what James does with Paul's gospel. He's focusing on the way faith finds expression. You, you trust me is what he's saying to this guy ultimately, but the way he says it is you obey the commandments. If you love me, if you trust me, you will love your neighbor. Love your neighbor. And you go, I, I think I've done that. Well, okay, then let's do it this way. Just give up everything and follow me. It's, it's that, it's that kind of radical call to trust Jesus. Um, when Abraham is cited by Paul as an example of faith, how is he cited? He's cited through his obedience, which is what Paul calls the obedience of faith, a phrase that occurs at the first and last chapter of the book of Romans. It's the obedience of faith, meaning Abraham's faith in God was not a sort of a, yeah, I think I'll order up one of those salvation boxes. Um, thank you. I'll be glad to trust you for that. No, it's I trust God. And when God calls me, I will follow. Um, it, it's that kind of faith that Jesus is looking for. And it expresses itself in this total giving up. It's the, it's what we saw in all three gospels. Deny yourself, take up your cross and follow me. That theme continues here. And it is striking. It is very striking. I, I, I think in my own reflecting on this, I, I think what I'm hearing is, uh, and, and Matty, you put it well in terms of the kingdom. What does it mean to be a part of this kingdom of Jesus Christ? This is the nature of the kingdom. And, and so just in a few stories and parables, a few episodes and parables, as we move to Jerusalem, there's some clarity on this is what it means to be a part of this kingdom. And this is how radical it is. This is how all-consuming it is. This is how strikingly different it's going to be. And, and again, we've got this problem for some of us. We've gotten too accustomed to certain things like Jesus and the children. I'll tell you, this is, this is one of the places Jesus doesn't just say to enter the kingdom, you have to be like a child. He says, I'm paying attention to how you treat children. This is one, this is really important to Jesus. How do you treat children? <laughs> you know, Caleb, you take care of your niece. I, it, good, good for you. I, you know, it's an interesting question. And I've, I've been really captured at some point. I don't know how many years ago this really got a hold of me. And I realized I'm standing in a group of people and there's adults and they've got their children. And, it's, and I'm just talking to the adults because we all know conversation with adults is the conversation that matters and blah, 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 blah. And the child's just there doing whatever the child's doing. And and it's, it's really caught my attention that if I'm in that group, I ought to be down on, on my knees and I ought to be crouched and saying, hi, what's your name? And what are you doing today? And what do you like about the idea that, that there is Jesus would do that. Despite the fact that the adults all want to stand around and talk to each other, Jesus would go, no, no, I'm, I'm about the kids. 
I, I really resist this idea that the God of the Old Testament and the God of the New Testament are two different gods. I, the God of the Old Testament is a God whose heart is with the widows and the orphans and the strangers and the poor. And he loves people. Jesus is that same God and his heart is with the orphans. His heart is with the children. And I, I want to encourage us all. This is, this is one very specific application on which I have my better and worse times. But I, I hope one of the things that's happening is that, is that I'm seeing children. And, and I'd encourage us to recognize that Jesus does that. I think another part of this that's striking is the, is the forgiving and being forgiven motif. I am forgiven much. How do I do it forgiving? And, and of course, I think I do fine until I sort of translate that into how critical are you of this, that, and the other going on around you? How ready to judge, how quick to judge, and how slow to extend mercy as it has been extended to you. And I think what goes hand in glove with that sense of forgiveness and of mercy, of relying on the mercies of God and extending those mercies is, is really guarding yourself against sin. I, 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 I get concerned that I take the gospel of mercy and, and abuse it, presume upon it, um, rather than allow it to become the deepest kind of motivation imaginable for why I would care about cultivating virtue, why I would care about guarding myself from all the temptations that come so easily. That is, these days, all the temptations. Um, this, is, this is very radical. Both the, you know, cut off your hand, gouge out your eye. I mean, this is, this is again, Jesus just being really, oh man, he's, he's like, will you please take this seriously? This is not light stuff. It's not like it doesn't matter how we live. And you want to follow me? Trust me? Obey the commandments. We go, oh, wait a minute, salvation is not, no, I, I didn't say that. I said, do you love me? If you love me, you will keep my commandments, he says to his disciples. Keep my commandments. He knows better than we do. We're not going to do that perfectly ever. It's always going to be rooted in his mercies and in his forgiveness. And he's the one that says to us, forgive 70 times seven. And he is not a hypocrite. So that's where our obedience is always rooted. That's its foundation always. But but that's a foundation to, to a way of life, um, that, that, that Matthew speaking through Jesus calls us to, I believe, as we move toward Jerusalem and toward his death. I, I think something like that is going on here. Um, as I say, this is a, this is a striking and interesting and puzzling section for me in, in these two gospels, particularly in Matthew and Mark. Um, but, but I think something like that is going on. Next week we will, um, we will pick up on Luke and we'll spend a couple of weeks in Luke. I'll send you a couple of, um, 
handouts to kind of help you track through Luke and see some of the connections with Matthew's gospel particularly um, and see some of the questions that it will raise. But you'll also then get a chance to enjoy um, so much richness in Luke's telling um, and in these 10 chapters where he just gives us so much. Um, but but as you read it, watch for themes. Um, see See what Luke seems to be particularly interested in. Um, see what he juxtaposes with, you know, with various things, um, and and uh, and enjoy reading. Uh, if anything, read, you know, these ten chapters or so of Luke. I, I don't have the syllabus right in front of me. Whatever the assignment is, go with it. The the assignments hold up pretty well. But anyway, I mean, Luke nine to nineteen, um, as much of that as you can, and we'll be in that section for the next two weeks. Um, walking with with Luke's narrative into Jerusalem. Uh, it is time to stop, and I want to try to be pretty close to on time with these things. I know you're on to other things and classes and such, but great to see you all. Good to have you in on this. I'm glad this is one of those cases where uh, Zoom is just a, a good thing, and I'm glad we've got it. So, yeah, if anybody wants to stick around and chat for a minute, uh, glad to do that. Otherwise, thanks, and uh, hope to see you next week.